Hello, and welcome to a special peripatetic edition of Recall This Book with your light-footed host, John Plotz. The conversation you're about to hear took place in Odense, Denmark, just after a conference called Love, Etc. I'm uh, sorry to report that conference was a lot less risque than it sounds, and in my case, the love was mainly for the city's incredible marzipan. And a little bit for the very cute Hans Christian Andersen house. But anyway, as the conference was ending, I was lucky enough to track down two of its star participants. Rita Felsky, who organized the conference and is the Niels Bohr Professor of Literature uh, at the University of Southern Denmark, uh, is a also a revered literary theorist, author of such influential works as The Uses of Literature and Limits of Critique. Now, Molly Serpel, an English professor at UC Berkeley, recently published her first novel, The Old Drift, and her short story, The Sack, won the 2015 Kane Prize for African Fiction in English. So, among other things, our conversation explored what happens, both cognitively and emotionally, when we get, when we get drawn into a work of art, begin to think with or think as somebody else. And the three of us uh, also discussed whether Zadie Smith's recent article uh, in defense of fiction in the New York Review of Books is right to find in fiction a basis for empathy between actual human beings. I think that we had an interesting conversation at lunch on the first day, prompted sort of by just the kind of like ambient question of love about whether or not we teach books that we love mm. or are we ever willing to teach books that we hate, et cetera. And there were varying opinions about it. I personally don't teach books that I love uh, because I want to preserve the aesthetic experience. I don't even want to talk about Howard's End to anybody because I'm like, I know I will find a flaw in something that I once found perfect and I want to preserve that feeling. <laughs> um, I don't, I, I, yeah, so there's this way in which the conversation about teaching has kind of hovered around the conference. And I one book that I found... Um, I came to love after teaching it. So I didn't mm -hmm. like it at first, right, but right. teaching attuned me to it yes, yes. Uh, was Never Let Me Go. So it was a contemporary mm. novel class, right. and it felt like a good novel to teach. In fact, I hadn't taught it the first time. I gave students an option of either reading that or reading Marilyn Robinson's Gilead. Mm. And most students chose Never Let Me Go. So the next time I taught the class, I taught Never Let Me Go. And... Teaching it, lecturing on it, attuned me to things about it that reading it on my own, or even reading about right, it, right, or right. even reading the fan, right, right, like right. all the like glowing reviews did not do. So it's almost the opposite of what most people think, which is that to teach something is to destroy it. Mm -hmm. And it's also something that I had thought before. Right, right, right. But somehow that you can have an attunement process through this, through close reading and through teaching. Absolutely, mm -hmm. absolutely. Now that's something I've, I've been thinking a, a lot about too, you know, that... Um, you know, this new book I have, it maps out three different ways of becoming attached and one's identification with its various dimensions, one's mm -hmm. this idea of attunement, and mm -hmm. the third is this idea of interpretation, mm -hmm. in, meaning the classroom and research, but focusing yeah. on the classroom. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, as Amalia was just saying, we tend to have this assumption that, you know, that we or the students arrive with these attachments and then they're somehow... Uh, then we lose the attachments by learning to interpret. And of course that can happen sometimes too. Yeah. I think that's but, like Michael Warner's argument in uncritical reading. I, right, like, right, I mean, right. it's like a subtle argument at the beginning and then it ends up being like, you know, you just have to choose between one. Right, one. right. But yeah. I, you know, the point is also to say that through interpretation and through academic uh, means, you often acquire new attachments, obviously. Yeah. And not just the students, but also the teachers. You know, I say someone, you know, is 
dragooned into teaching an intro to literary studies class and they suddenly develop, you know, a new attachment of Stella Dallas or something, you know, that suddenly yeah. this film becomes interesting or a grad student arrives in uh, at a university, you know, thinking of themselves a modernist and, and they have an amazing class mm-hmm. on Chaucer, now they're mm-hmm. medievalist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So interpretation is also a means to new attachments rather than simply mm-hmm. a quelching of attachments. I think, you know, so Zane Smith, like, you know, a couple of weeks ago, published this article about fiction in the New York Review of Books. But then, Namwala, you had written this article in March, The Banality of Empathy, which, you know, won my heart immediately because you quoted a passage I constantly quote on representative thinking. And, you know, the way that, I mean, I'm going to schematize, but try not to reduce. Like, you're, you're interested in the way that we could think of imagination without automatically jumping to empathy or the emotive dimension or, you know, not feeling with, but thinking with is what you're interested in investigating. And then, you know, one could or could not connect that to Zadie Smith's, you know, real, like, I would, I'm not going to say it's a predictable novelist's defensive novels, but I mean, it's a, a novelist's defensive novels that, that comes out of her belonging to a realist tradition that wants, you know, inner other lives to be available to us in fiction in the way that Catherine Gallagher says fiction's been doing since, you know, the 18th century or something. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think um, Smith is following the, the kind of, um, well, Zadie Smith is following yeah. the tradition from Eliot, from George Eliot, who gets that from Adam Smith, to a certain extent, like the, the idea yeah. of sympathy. And can you say one sentence more about that? Because I completely am with you, but just the genealogy of that. Well, I mean, I, I don't know if, if Zadie Smith has written about Middlemarch, but I think at least I would characterize some of her novels have the quality of the 19th century novel that, I mean, On Beauty definitely does. I think White Teeth was called Dickensian, right? So there's clearly like a, a novelistic influence there mm-hmm. as well. And even to the extent that N.W. is is a tribute to Wolf, still the idea of inner consciousness is 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 primary there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does seem to me that I think the word empathy doesn't appear in her essay. I think she uses the word compassion. And I would actually say that the reason that I find Arendt interesting to think about alongside this tradition of empathy being the primary or at least um, most efficacious way that the novel intersects with ethics is is less that it's uh, about thinking with and not feeling with and more Mm -hmm. that it is about thinking and feeling with rather than thinking and feeling as, Mm -hmm. right? So the, Mm -hmm. the idea of projecting into someone else I see as having a kind of rapacity to it and a kind of uh, overwhelming um, assumption of the other person in both senses <laughs> um, that you are assuming you can get inside them, but also when you get inside them, it is you actually are uh, eradicating the difference, the distance that Arendt finds so important to maintain in order to think and feel with mm-hmm. other people. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, I'm going to give you some phrases. I think, you know, Molly, you mentioned you were struck by these phrases, but in terms of what she's doing, I agree. I heard compassion too, but she also proposes interpersonal voyeurism, yes. profound mm-hmm. other fascination, and this, the last one is the most science fictional, but it's, but it's interesting, cross-epidermal reanimation. Which really does sound uh, a subsumptive in the way you're describing. But. 
But yeah, I, I, yeah I, I, I liked that move. So this is like this rhetorical move of saying, instead of saying cultural appropriation, cultural appropriation which right. is this yeah. kind of um, calcified phrase that we bandy about, kind of like we lob back and forth like a weapon between different kind of factions, right? Yeah. She's like, well, what if we called it these other things? How would we feel about it? And I sort of wish she had kept going because those terms have built into them the creepiness and the the bizarreness of the mm. desire for empathy, which I think is very human. So it's maybe say the first one again. Interpersonal voyeurism. Interpersonal voyeurism, yeah. right? It's got a creepiness to yeah, it. Totally. But I yeah. think that's accurate. I think that's right. Yeah. Um, and she yeah. starts the essay by saying, I used to feel weird about that, but then I realized novelists do it. And yeah. so I felt more comfortable. Yeah. All of that seems fine to me. Yeah. But at the end of the essay... She's saying the fact that I do it as a novelist is ethically good. Mm. And that's when I'm like, well, now we're just justifying being novelists uh-huh. to a point where we've lost the, the creepy sense right. that actually I think could use more investigation. The term that came up today that I really liked that I thought could have been another substitute for the desire to be in the other or, you know, think about the other yeah. from the inside that came up in your talk was xenophilia, uh-huh. right? Instead of xenophobia, yeah. Yeah. it's like the, the, the desire for, for the other, the yeah. desire for difference. And that's not something that I think we need to eradicate as human beings, but I do think it's something we need to be careful about. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, this word empathy. I mean, I guess the question, you know, which is being raised um, partly is, you know, when, when we are empathizing, whatever that might involve, and perhaps we need to talk more about that, does that in fact mean a uh, you know a complete mind meld, right? Or mm-hmm. can it be a partial empathy or a partial identification? And and certainly sometimes when people talk about you know in fact actually in the Sadie Smith essay you know she sort of said I became Madame Bovary I became yeah. Anna Karenina yeah, yeah, yeah. and that I mean this may be partly a question of temperament it may be that it actually does vary quite a lot just at, at a phenomenological level between people. But I've certainly had kind of strong identifications, various kinds with characters, but I've never felt I was that character. Mm. There's always this like both and. Yes, I am that character, but I'm not that character. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's kind well, of that's why you and I both like semi-detached as a phrase. Yeah, semi-detached, yeah. And, and I'm, you know, I'm just wondering if we press Zadie Smith on that, whether she might agree with us. Um, because, you know, I do think, um, you know, well, say one of the chapters of my books talks about identification, and I, I disagree with the idea that identification requires, or in fact, you know, mm-hmm. is, there is in fact very common that we have that mind meld. Yeah. And I think that's where people yeah. disagree, you know, actually philosophers, you know, so Noel Carroll has written on this, mm-hmm. uh, says that identification involves the Vulcan mind meld, you know, referring yeah. to Star Trek, mm-hmm. yeah, and yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a bad thing. Yeah. Yeah. But then other philosophers, uh, like Beres Gort says, well, no, actually, you know, identification is aspectual. You identify with one bit mm. of a person. You know, mm-hmm. I identify actually, uh, I discuss a, a book about um, gay men talking about identification with divas. And they sort of say, well, I identify with this part of Tina Turner, but not that part of Tina Turner. Right, 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 right. <laughs> yeah. And I do think there is a lot, I mean, perhaps that's not invariably the case. And there can be a kind of identification, including empathy, that is kind of all consuming in problematic ways. But I do think we can also identify mm-hmm. in ways that are more partial. And that can include the cognitive as well as the affective, you know, um, right. yeah. and that's perhaps in some ways more typical than this than this uh, than this other model. I'd certainly agree with, with, with Noel, you know, the the idea that um, uh, you know I think it's now been pretty forcefully debunked, but I guess people keep coming back to it because it's mm. a kind of nice justification. But we do the idea that literature makes us. You know, automatically more empathic, or why, mm. you know, why, why mm-hmm. are you meeting so unpleasant mm-hmm. if that's the case? You know, 
Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't. And why can't anthropologists talk to each other? <laughs> right, right, right. So yeah. I, I don't think I don't think that reading books uh, makes people better people, makes you a better person. That seems to imply that if you're, for example, illiterate, as much of the world is, you can't be a good person. It seems utterly insane to me. Yeah. Um, you know, and so that is a risk with a certain kind of assumption that you you have to read George Eliot in order to learn to become empathic. No, no, I wouldn't. Why wouldn't go with that at all? Yeah. Yeah. And the other point, you know, with someone like. Uh, you know, Nuss, Martha Nussbaum's work, I, you know, I do respect quite a lot. But it's true that, again, that, that you know, the, the examples are cherry-picked, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you become empathic through reading George Eliot. Do you become more empathic by reading American Psycho? No, right. I don't think you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so it works much better. And that debate goes literature. way back, that notion that you're not allowed to write evil characters because that would create right. evil empathy or something. Right. right. Sounds right. like it's another Star Trek plot. That, Which, I mean, yeah. I make the case that reading American Psycho does, can have uh, bearing on ethics. Right. Mm-hmm. And ethics in a kind of neutral sense. Right, right. But right. also, yeah. I make the case that it actually can have positive ethics and not just by virtue of um, I am not that person mm, but right. because of the experience that it, that it puts us through um, it, it, it teaches us something I say um, about um, the difficulty we have confronting genuine bad inexplicable things in life what, what most people call evil and that in a, in a kind of Nietzschean sense you know if you have no recourse to explanation you actually have to confront how you actually feel about it because if you can't reach for it well the gods did it or psychology did it or whatever and I think that's something that American Psycho manages through the blankness of that character can I get a bit sorry because I'm kind of interested to hear more than say about how that relates or does it relate to the Knauskar example right because you mentioned Knauskar saying well what's interesting you know is actually trying to empathise with the totally you know the unspeakable right with Adolf Hitler and that in a way might teach you something about the fact you can't just simply other the villainous person and you have to grapple with it in some way. But you, you, you seem sort of unhappy with his line of argument there. Mm-hmm. And so how is that different to mm-hmm. the obviously <laughs> significantly less monstrous or less monstrous uh, character in... Uh, in American Psycho, well, he's just as monstrous. I mean, there's like, which well, is on a smaller scale, <laughs> right? Right, sure. I mean, he's a serial killer, so who knows how far he'll he'll go eventually. <laughs> but um, I think, I mean, there's a couple of differences. One right. is the the end of of projecting into or empathizing with the villain humanizes the villain, and it helps us understand perhaps what it would mean to do these kind of murderous things, Mm -hmm, these horrible, um, terrible things. But American Psycho, and this is one difference, is that it is fiction. So it is, uh, it it allows us actually to experience something that is impossible to experience in life, which is to encounter and be forced to inhabit the perspective of an impossible person. He even says, I'm, I'm I'm an impossible uh, I'm an, a non-contingent being. Like right, it right, doesn't. Right. He he actually is not. It's not possible for someone to be um, as empty as as Patrick Bateman is. And right. he's he's a construct, and right. he's sort of a vehicle through right, which right. we might do something, through which we might experience right, right, something. Right. So you know, the example that I use is uh, the women of Bacchus, which or the, sorry, the women of Trachis, um, um, a play that Bernard Williams reads. 
as again having the same Nietzschean upshot. We're just like mm. terrible thing after terrible thing happen right. happens in the play, and there's this constant like, well, who did it? How did this happen? And it's and it's the one Greek play where it's like the gods didn't do it. It's like we can't we can't blame it on the gods. Okay. It's clearly a construct. This right, didn't right. actually happen. It's not right, a historical right, right. event. Right. But the construct itself, Williams argues, puts us in this position where we okay. have no recourse to reason or justice or empathy or right, right, emotion. Right. That all we all we are all we face is the inevitability and grotesque horror wow. of, mm-hmm. of violence. I wonder if you could read the Book of Job that way, too. I was just thinking that, yeah. Yeah, the, and the, yeah. yeah not just the Book of Job, but um, uh, I was thinking of another recent... I, I lost yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just because I mean, yeah. it, it provides a kind of God. God comes out and resolves things, but the re- resolution is, is, you know, considered throughout the history of Christian mm-hmm. theology like this unsatisfactory addendum. Yeah. I mean, and this, yeah. is, this is one of the things that... This is one of the reasons that I think the empathy model of fiction is insufficient for me, is that it right. relies entirely because it came from realist fiction. So the right. idea yeah. that, that we're going to analogize ourselves to characters right. um, is built on this right, mimetic right, right. principle. Yeah, yeah. When there's there's so many amazing, interesting things that art can do to our experience affectively and yeah. ethically when it's not realism. And I think, you know, Smith knows this, and she wrote this essay, Two Paths for the Novel. Yeah, so yeah, she yeah. knows that, that yeah. there are affordances um, in these texts that are not realist. But surely, you know, just from the other side, there is a way. I, I completely agree with the account that, you know, you guys have been giving that, as far as I understand it, which is that that empathy works best with certain kinds of fictional forms and realist character that seems exactly right to me. And so I'm, so I'm sort of interested in a way in which there are also other kinds of identification that have nothing to do with empathy. Like yes. when you identify with Camus' uh, Merceau or something, right. or when you identify with James Bond, there's no empathy in James Bond, you don't yeah. find empathy with James Bond, uh, but yeah. you can identify with James Bond. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I do think the empathy model, you know, if it works at all, works only with certain kinds of fiction. But you know, if on the one hand you could say that um, that there is a uh, the connection is less than in, in real life, and another way you could say it's more than in real life, I'd have thought, because you can get inside people's heads in fiction in a way you yeah. never can in real life. You you become you know, something that Doric Cohen talks about that mm-hmm. how weird we read a novel and we are mind readers. Yeah. Yeah. we know someone better than you will ever know someone in real well, that's life. That's why I find that argument in Culture of the Diagram about the invention of free and direct discourse so convincing. You know, which yeah. is I think it's Pascal Casanova originally, but you know that that it evolves in four different linguistic traditions between oh. 1780 and 1810, oh, wow. okay. yeah. and they're not necessarily aware of one another like that's an amazing fact you know in terms of how that mind mill happens i mean and i do think this is why the it's important to recognize that this desire is so deeply human even if it is perverse and impossible Mm -hmm. because i do think like what what writers are doing in free and direct as writers is the kind of mind reading they can't do in real life, right? So, I mean, and there's this George Eliot story that's about about, um, being able to um, uh, read read minds and the problems with what that would result if it actually happened. Um, And I think as a a writer, I don't feel that I am my characters, but I am closer to understanding what it's like to be inside them than I ever have been with a, a person I know. I mean, I'm curious, you know, because I, I actually hear quite a lot of, I've heard quite a few authors say this, 
And I do think, you know, I want to take what they say at face value and, and think through its implication. It's kind of interesting to me, but I'm just wondering if you ever had that experience where people say that, you know, their characters do, authors say their characters do get away from mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. and the characters end up doing things they hadn't planned, yes. the author hadn't planned at all. I mean, do you, have you found that? Or? Yes, I have. And I also have How found... How to explain it? <laughs> well, so I, I was just saying earlier in um, an interview I was doing here um, that writing for me feels very akin to reading. So, you know, and the way that I know this is when we experience a filmic adaptation and we see uh, Lily Bart and we're like, that's not what she looks Mm -hmm. like. But I had no idea what Lily Bart looked like when I was reading. Mm -hmm. I just had an impression, a kind Mm -hmm. of like fuzzy liliness, right? That is like my understanding. And that's how I see my own characters. If you were to ask me, what is the hair color of my novel, of, of the characters in my novel, I could probably only do half. Or the, you know, it's, there's not, or like, if I had to draw like a police sketch, or like actually cast a person as a character in my novel, I don't have a very strong visual impression. I have this kind of like fuzzy sense of them as a person. Um, But they do have this quality of radical otherness, Hmm. um, of of separateness from me, that I think I don't have children myself. So I don't know if it's like that, where it's like, you're me, but you're not me. Um, But I do know that characters, I've tried to change uh, a character's name once and it just didn't work. It's like he balked. He was like, Hmm. that's not my name. Hmm. I also, because I'm, I'm reading my way into figuring, into creating the novel. It's like, I'm reading, I'm writing to see what happens sometimes. Um, it's almost like the novel already exists. And I think the, the novelist that uh, spoke today, Hannah, was saying a yeah. similar thing. It already exists and you are just being led through it or transcribing it. Mm. And in that sense, you know, um, the characters, I learn things about them. So I'll like write a whole dialogue between two characters and I'll, I'll like do a full draft of a novel and I'll be like, why does he say that? Like, why does he... Why is he saying that? And then I'll realize, oh, he's bisexual. I just mm. hadn't, it hadn't occurred to me mm. that that's why he said that in wow. that moment, you know? So it's like this weird way where you're learning them. I mean, and of course, like different writers, you know, Nabokov makes the kind of inappropriate or un-PC pun that his characters are his galley slaves. Yeah. Um, so I know other characters, but even he has like admits, I think in other interviews that his characters are not always under his control. I'm just wondering how distinctive that is to novelists, because I feel like, isn't there a famous Michelangelo line about finding the slave sculpture inside the stone? Yes, you know, yeah. That, so that, I mean, I'm wondering, because it seems like, I've heard, like Rita, I've heard a lot of novelists say this, and it does seem so distinctive to novelists when they say it. And now I'm just wondering, is there... I don't think. I, I mean, I think. Yeah. I mean, the the that's the concept of the muse is yeah. it's, it's exactly this. So I feel yeah. like it's a very old tradition of thinking about writing and and poetry and and painting and um, yeah, it's it's in the canvas and you're just bringing it out. Right. Like right, it's, right. it's very much along <laughs> those lines. Well, you guys, thank you. This has been an awesome conversation. I really appreciate it. I appreciate your time, especially at the end of a long um, et cetera, et cetera conference. <laughs> so thank you so okay, much. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recall This Book. Um, as always, um, thanks go to Brandeis University, to my co-host Elizabeth Ferry, and to uh, our producers Matthew Schratz and Claire Ogden, and our music is courtesy of Eric Cheslow and Barbara Cassidy. See you next time.